Masters in Comics. In these podcasts, we will be chatting to comics creators and getting a unique insight into the comics industry. Today, I'm talking to John McShane. Uh, welcome, John McShane, to Masters in Comics. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into comics. Well, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't have comics. I, I remember my father was very impressed with the word invulnerable in the Superman comic, which he must have been reading to me. Um, although I don't, there's also, a, I don't remember learning to read. I, I seem to read from a very early age, as did my brother. Um, but my father got a job in IBM in Greenock, and we moved to Guruk. Now, Guruk was opposite the American base in Danun. And I, years later, I realised that we had American comics that nobody else had because they got comics flown directly into the American base for the troops. So we were with the troops' kids. We were with uh, a lot of Americans in town. Uh, every single shop in Guruk had American comics. Um, I have to say, in a very random order, they didn't get distributed in numerical order. But I thought that was quite cool, actually. Um, it, it teaches you eventually to read Ulysses and things like that because you don't expect things to flow from 1 to 12. you you got them in all sorts of different combinations. Yeah. Um, and it, eventually, uh, my mother, I was very ill one day and my mother went down and bought a lot of random comics, including that bizarre Captain Marvel who shouted split and his body came apart. <laughs> um but she also got me Spider-Man, and I'd never seen a Marvel comic before. You've got to remember, this was at the very start of Marvel. And um, he, he fell into the water and his, shoot, his suit shrank. And I went, this is weird. I've never read anything like this in my life, having been used to a DC Comics rather sanitised version of the universe. Um, so that got I, I got intrigued about Marvel, and I remember coming across an early copy of Daredevil in a shop in Guruk. And... Uh, well, that was kind of me hooked. Um, and Daredevil has remained a, 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 a character has got a very fond place in my, my mind. But I also read a lot of British comics. In fact, I read practically every comic I came across. Yeah. Um, it, was, it, it was that brilliant period with Leo Baxendale and Ken Reed, first of all in DC Thompson, and then they get an offer which gave them something like a third extra money for working for Wham. And uh, Baxendale drew... It's either every page or practically every page of Wham number one. And then Ken Reed was there, and uh, it, it was just amazing. And then the, the Smash was similar. And then, of course, they got infected by the Marvel bug as well and, and took over Marvel. So I've probably read every single Marvel comic in the first 25 years of Marvel. Um, not deliberately, but just because you would read these things cover to cover, and that was it. But, yeah, comics... They were always part of my life. And then I went to school in Glasgow and people didn't seem to have American comics. A bunch of weirdos. <laughs> so uh, we, we had a little comic club that I started in, in the school. And in fact, it, it, it kind of resurfaced a few years ago, I noticed. Um, because people were genuinely interested in comics. And then eventually I became a teacher at the same school. And uh, Pat Mill Slane was just coming out. And one of the boys in... in uh, first year or second year, I think it was first year, he asked me what I thought of Slane, and I said, well, I only just started reading it, I said, but I wonder where he get work spasm from. So the boy brought in his copy of uh, an edition of the Irish Annals and showed me this ancient manuscript with work spasm in it, and I went, oh, for goodness sake, <laughs> this is pretty intellectual discussion of comics, which of course it was, and, yeah. and quite rightly, because Pat's, Pat's done his homework. Yeah. Slane, Slane, I've just started rereading, and 
and it's just a magnificent piece of work that deserves to be published in a really, really nice set of books and, and remembered forever. It's absolutely amazing. So, um, so there's a, a sense of a, a comics community in, in Glasgow that, that to me, you've always been a part of that, you know. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your time uh, when you uh, set up uh, AKA? Well, what happened there was, to give you the long version, <laughs> um, there was a shop in Paisley called Yankee Mags, which we think is the first comic shop in Britain. Uh, certainly the lease was signed in 1940. Uh, a guy called Galately, I think it was John Galately. Um, so if anybody can find a shop before 1940, uh, I, I'm interested because I haven't heard of one. Um, but when I discovered this uh, shop, I was still in primary school, I think. Um, in those days, kids could travel on trains, buy comics, go back home, everything was fine. The parents didn't see you for hours and nobody cared. Um, but this guy, you walked into the right-hand side of the shop and the comics were piled up. Um, and it was just amazing. Some of them were slightly water-damaged because they came across as ballast. There's a whole story there that yeah. involves another um, chapter. <laughs> um, but it was amazing. Anyway, when I was at university, my friend worked in, in, in Yankee Mags. And her brother met me one day and he said there was a a group of folk discussing comics at Winters Hills Pub in Great Western Road every Wednesday. And I went, oh, oh, I'll need to go to that. So scooted along to that, found out it was a, 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 a an away group from the science fiction community, which was very big in Glasgow as well. Uh, I met Pete Root, Bob Napier, Wee John Cleland, Steve Montgomery, all these, all these people. Um, and we started very early on producing fanzines. I started AKA, it was Fusion, it was Early Warning. Um, this is just like in the club every Wednesday. But also Pete Root was in British Rail at the time and he would go down to London with our once list and go to every comic shop he could manage in his break from the trains. It was mostly the night shift he was on, so he the whole day. And he would bring his upper comics the following Wednesday. It was like a subscription service <laughs> in the pub. <laughs> so anyway, Steve Montgomery came in one day and he said, have you guys uh, been in Virginia galleries? And I think I was the only person who'd heard of it. Um, Virginia Street in Glasgow is where they had the tobacco market back in Robert Burns' day. Uh, the Clyde used to come up where Debenhams is now. And the tobacco would be taken up Virginia Street into the tobacco market and auctioned. And the old auction houses were now getting made into shops. And he, Steve said, I think it's quite cheap. So I built down there, had a wee look, and it was very cheap. I can't remember how much. It might have been 40 quid a week or something. It was really cheap. Yep. And that was your rent rates, lighting, heating, the whole, the whole shebang. Um, so I went back up and reported the following Wednesday, and I said, well, I think we should do this, boys. I think we should have a wee comic shop. So the only people um, foolish enough to agree with me where Bobby Napier and Pete Root. <laughs> so then we drew straws, and I mean, we literally drew straws to decide which one of us should resign from his job, because we're all in full-time employment. And I either won or lost, depending how you look at it, because <laughs> I got the short straw. And I gave the school three weeks' notice, and we opened in March the 1st, I think it was, in 1984. Right. Um, and I took the name from the fanzine, a.k.a. Books and Comics, because I thought it begins with an A, that's good for a directory. <laughs> and 
AK Books and Comics also abbreviates to ABC, and I thought that was quite cool. Yeah. Probably nobody in the world got that, but I did. And the fanzine was named after Alter Ego, Rod Thomas's fanzine, because Alter Ego in Latin is, is a, a, sorry, Alter Ego is Latin for also known as. Yeah. So that was us. And um, previous to that, the comic club had uh, gone with my suggestion. We used to go down to London. It was every two months to the Westminster Comic Mart. And we go drink with our mates to the Westminster Arms. Now, our mates were these aspiring comic book people that you've probably never heard of. Uh, there was Alan Moore, there was Kevin Neil McMahon, Dave Gibbons, uh, Steve McManus, who, of course, was edited in 2000 AD, Simon Geller, um, uh, who else was there? Uh, Stevie Dillon, I think, appeared. Brian Bolland, of course, were very pally with I don't know what happened to those guys, but anyway, um, I suggested one day that instead of going to London the following month, we should all put like twenty pound or whatever it was into onto the table, and invite these guys up to Glasgow, just reverse the the train journey basically. So everybody agreed, and we got I think it was the McLaren Galleries in Sucky Hall Street, and we had a one day comic convention. And when I look back on it and, and, and remember who was there, it's uh, pretty who? astonishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a who's who of British comics. <laughs> and and we had great panels, and Dougie Maxwell did an auction, and we had art displays. Um, I'm pretty sure Grant Morrison was there, Malky McCormick. Uh, we had original art on display, and people hadn't seen the original art at that point. Um, it was just amazing. And we kept that going every, every three times a year. We had a comic mart, and as many of them as possible, we had a guest, either a local guest like Grant or somebody else. So we carried us on into the shop, and the shop had, uh, well, international reputation for inviting guests. Yeah. We had Will Eisner, we had Dave Sim. Um, I, in fact, I don't really know who we didn't have. We had the whole <laughs> deadline, Brett Younes and all that. Yep. We had... Uh, oh, we... we I, I, It'd be easier to have a wee list of who didn't come. <laughs> and the comic line at the time was really popular. We used to have um, Hugh and Cry come in. They were getting into their comics. We had Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Charlene bought comics, although she's a multimillionaire, so maybe she did. <laughs> um, it was John McElhose, Michael Hohen. Um, he was the, the guitarist, the yeah. guitarist. He was, a, he, he was a nice guy. He still is a nice guy, by the way. I didn't mean that in the past tense. <laughs> um, it just it was just amazing. I remember one boy that was working for us one day said I was away somewhere and he, he said, Oh, I was really impressed last Saturday. And we did Charlie Spaterian, we did Pat Kane, we did uh, Deacon Blue, um, my shop was built by a guy who uh, has recently been in Simple Minds. And I'm going, Who were you impressed by? He says, Paul Coyer. <laughs> now, Paul was an old friend of mine, but I have to say he, he wasn't top of my list for being impressed, but I mean Paul's a lovely guy. I, I just didn't expect that answer. He, Paul was in looking for me, and sadly, I wasn't there because right. uh, we were going to go out for a, for a drink. But anyway, I've, I've caught up with him since. Um, so, yeah, it, was, it became a wee social hub. Mm-hmm. And then, by one of these coincidences that always happens in the real world, um, my friend who was at school with me became a teacher in Cope Bridge. And one of his students was Mark Miller. Now, my friend Kevin O'Brien was really into his comics. He loved Captain Britain. Um, for Kevin's uh, 21st, we got him Captain, Captain Britain memorabilia and somebody painted Captain Britain on a, 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 um, 
a file holder and things like that for him. So when Mark started writing scripts and things like that at the age of 13, Kevin encouraged him. He didn't say, no, no, you can't do that. You have to do your hire, son. Um, he encouraged him and then he said to him, my pal's opened a comic shop, you'll need to go. So Mark came along and uh, that's how he met Grant. And um, Grant met a guy there called um, Jim Clements. Uh, Grant showed all of his, his uh, proposal for uh, a Batman book where Batman gets trapped in Arkham Asylum. Jim made comments on it and it soon became a kind of metaphysical treatise on evil, <laughs> uh, which, it, uh, as I recall from the original proposal, it hadn't started out as. And uh, if, you, if you get the 15th anniversary edition of what became Arkham Asylum, you'll see uh, Grant mentions that, that Jim Clements was a big influence. Jim, Jim didn't write the final script, that was Grant, but all these... Um, Jim, Jim said, well, it could go in this direction, it could go in this direction, and he pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And it became, well, it's still in print, I'm pretty sure. That's huge. Yeah. <clears throat> but that was kind of written in the back of our shop. Right. Um, I remember one wee boy was dead in press one day. He says to his mum, I think we must have been printing AKA on the photocopy on the back, something like that. And I think Dom Reagan was in doing a cover or something. He turned to his mum with his eyes wide open. He says, they don't just sell comics here. They make them. <laughs> so probably the first uh, comic studio in Glasgow then. <laughs> well, no, of course not, because it was the Glasgow Looking Glass. Oh, of course. In 1825 yeah, yeah. in Ingram Street. This is the speciality of yours, John. <laughs> uh, should have known, well, known better. <laughs> you should, I, I thought you'd deliberately ask that question. Um, no, it was my friend Dennis Gifford, um, who we used to meet at the Westminster Arms. I forgot about Dennis. Um, <laughs> Dennis has written all these wonderful books about comics. Uh, he, the whole comics world owes him a massive debt. But one day, his other thing was he wrote scripts for Barry Norman uh, for uh, the film series and BBC yeah. uh, TV. Actually, Barry Norman also wrote film, uh, comics. Right. He wrote uh, Fluke by Trog. Right. Um, uh, just in case people didn't know that about Barry. Um, anyway, uh, Dennis Gifford... Um, who'd worked on cartoon art productions in Glasgow about whom I'm still investigating because they've got about a million addresses and <laughs> a dozen names and I think I've fig finally figured out who they are. Yeah. But um, Dennis was in Glasgow one day at the invitation of the Glasgow Film Festival and he said to me, where's the Mitchell Library, John? I said, oh, I'll, I'll take it to the Mitchell. He says, I'll, I'll be a couple of hours, I want to look something up. So I went away home for a couple of hours and came back and collected them. Went to GFT with them. Great talk about films. Uh, Dennis went to tell me I went back home. And then in 1985, during a, what's now referred to as a Will Eisner convention, <laughs> uh, Dennis brought out this book called, uh, in Dennis's uh, very modest way, The Complete Guide to British Comics. Um, and he mentioned The Glasgow Looking Glass, the world's first comic in 1825. Sadly, Dennis died. Dennis, Dennis was great fun to be with. I, I, it was really sad when he died. And six months later, his schoolmate and fellow comic artist, um, Bob Monkhouse, died. Uh, but I'm sure that was a coincidence. Unless they, were, unless they were just needing each other's company to draw cartoons <laughs> up in heaven. Um, anyway, uh, after Dennis died, I thought, you know, I never followed that up. I, I really need to follow that up. So I went into the Mitchell, who possessed six complete copies, complete runs of Glasgow Looking Glass. And then I think there was 
by another coincidence, the publishers of the Druth magazine in Glasgow wanted me to write an essay about something. And I suggested a looking glass to them. And that became their most requested issue and their most requested article. Um, I think partly because I upset people by saying that comics started in Glasgow. <laughs> but um, it's a comic magazine. Paul Gravette grilled me about it. Does it have continuing series? I says it's even got to be continued <laughs> at the end of a at the end of a few strips. Does it have word balloons? Yes, it has word balloons. Does it have caricatures? Yes, it has caricatures. Is it social satire? Yes. Uh, my life in town, social satire. I answered every single one of Paul's questions, and he, I think, reluctantly, I had to include Glasgow Looking Glass in his timeline of British comics, in in his book about British comics, but. Um, Yes, uh, John Wilson, whose relative just a few years ago sold the company after all these years to an American conglomerate and still owned uh, a lithographic printing press after all these years. Um, John Wilson had set up this venture um, uh, with a guy who had loads of money um, and employed at least William Heath. I think there's more than one artist involved, but we don't have any other names. Um, so he had a comic studio, essentially, in Glasgow in the 1800s. Who'd have thunk it? Where, where about was that? It was, in, it was in Ingram Street. Um, I've got the address somewhere. Um, was it Ingram Street? Yes, it was Ingram Street. And uh, it was sold in uh, a site which is, is now a, a lovely cafe bar um, on John Street um, by a guy called Griffin, who in the Glasgow Looking Grass is portrayed as a, a mythological Griffon. <laughs> um and then they expanded, they changed the name to the Northern Looking Glass, and they were eventually on sale in Dublin, London, Aberdeen, all over the place. And I think that's why there are so many copies extant. It was, it was quite an expensive periodical mm -hmm. uh, until, I'm saying roughly 1900, comics were for adults and not for, for children because you didn't have children with money. And the reason that things changed about 1900 was the 1870 Education Act. Mm -hmm. But before that, you're talking about comics, you're talking about adults. And um, it was quite expensive, so folk didn't throw it away. And I think that's why there's so, so many, many still yeah. exist. But yeah, I suppose that was a, a comic studio. And I suppose the back of my shop was a kind of comic <laughs> studio as well, because lots of things got plotted there um, and, and sometimes drawn. Yeah, so I mean, if you fast forward a little bit, so how did, how did Bogeyman come about? Well, we're down at the Westminster Arms. This is a story that involves around the Westminster Arms in London, in Winters Gills pub in Great Western Road in Glasgow. I'm down to Westminster Arms or somewhere one day, possibly during one of Frank Plowright and Hassan Yusuf's UK conventions. And we're talking to John Wagner, Alan Grant, Robin Smith, and my friend um, uh, George Jackson was just back from tour with his band Ossian in, in America. And George was always interested in comics. Um, so we're, we're all talking and they thought, you know, we could just do a comic between us. You, you, you say these things when you're in a bar for a few hours. You don't you don't realise the consequences till much later. So uh, I was invited down to Colchester and John uh, doesn't throw away old scripts that have been rejected and he keeps them in our filing cabinet. So he drug out, drug out this strip, this uh, proposal called Bogey. What's it about? You can't call it Bogey, there's another strip called Bogey. Um, and also we discussed that 
an American who thinks he's Humphrey Bogart isn't as funny as a guy from Greenock who thinks he's Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> so it became a fish out of water story, which I think is much better than, than the original. I think that's what the original was lacking. So um, Robin Smith agreed to draw it. John and Alan uh, produced, I thought, great scripts. Um, and then we, we had to publish it. Uh, I was just going to publish it through Titan Distributors. But no, no, no. Uh, we thought we'd get it into WH Smith. <laughs> Talk about arrogance. <laughs> but we did get it into WH Smith. And uh, it was quite um, intriguing going into WH Smith and seeing it on the on the shelves beside Marvel Comics and the Beano and the Dandy. It was quite, quite cool. Unfortunately, our printer was owned by Robert Maxwell. And copies went missing. When I say copies went missing, I think it was 30,000 copies went missing. Just a few then. Just a few. And uh, we had to sue Robert Maxwell. But I have to say we won, so um, uh, that was a good ending to that story. <laughs> Although I'd rather have had all the copies on sale. Yeah, sure. Uh, that would have, uh, have been a better way to make some money. Sure. But um, I was I was over in Angoulême uh, in France promoting The Bogeyman to see if we get any foreign publishers. We did, actually. Um, but one guy who was at my table, but nobody introduced us, was a guy I'd been dying to meet since 1967 when I bought his book in Greenock, the Penguin Book of Comics. It was George Perry. And George Perry wrote a great, oh, I think it was a half-page article about Angoulême in The Guardian that reproduced a picture from a comic he thought was intriguing, The Bogeyman. So Alan Yentob, I think it must have been a pal of George Perry's and, and or a reader of The Guardian. He phoned up Queen Margaret Drive in, in, in Glasgow, the headquarters of the BBC, and said, do we own those rights? Of course, nobody at the BBC knew what he was talking about, but they they scrabbled around because they didn't want the wrath of Yentob. <laughs> and, and they phoned me at the shop one day uh, looking for the rights. And I said, oh, yeah, well, let, let, let's talk. So uh, John and Alan flew up and we met Paul Pender, who was put in charge of scriptwriting duties. The producer was to be Andy Park, who invented um, uh, Mike's Headroom, among other things. Yeah. Um, and Andy assembled this group of people that I've just thinking about recently, and how the heck did he put all those people together? It was Craig Ferguson, who's now famous for his talk show in America. It was Fiona Fullerton, who was just fresh out of James Bond. And a great... Uh, uh, a great TV series my mum liked, and I'm going to forget his name. Yes, I forgot his name. Um, and with Midjure, uh, who's a lovely guy, uh, and he mentions us in his biography. Um, and there was a guy called Robbie Coltrane. <laughs> um, and you might think, um, listening to this, that Robbie doesn't look like Bogey. But you've got to remember, this guy thinks he's Humphrey Bogart. He isn't actually Humphrey Bogart. He's a lunatic from Greenock. Um, so we kind of thought that was intriguing. I, I'm not so sure. Maybe we should have gone with a bogey lookalike. But anyway, um, the program got nominated for a BAFTA, and we all had a, a whale of a time in Edinburgh with my mum drinking tea with Fiona Fullerton, which was uh, one of the high points of, of my comic life. I, I thought it was, <laughs> I, I thought it was really good. Um, yeah, and that was the bogeyman. Yeah. Not not an entire success because of a year's worth of suing going on. And uh, but 
people still ask yeah, for it. Yeah, still fondly remember. We're including a book called The Glasgow Smile mm-hmm. uh, about um, comedy in Glasgow. Um, the the film, I think, surfaced in a very bad quality thing on YouTube, but the BBC managed to recently give me an, an HD copy, which is really nice. Yeah. Uh, Andy Park and I watched it again recently, and we thought, oh, it's not as bad as we thought, because <laughs> the rain was terrible. We had 18 days to film it, and the rain was torrential. And how all those lovely people put up with the filming, I do not know, but um, it, it turned out all right. Do you uh, think it will ever resurface as, uh, as a release? Well, people still talk about it. You know, if, if somebody's got a million pounds out there and, and wants to and wants to get the rights, um, I'm sure we can come to an amicable <laughs> arrangement. Um, uh, I think there's I think there's a lot worse comics and I think there's a lot worse television. So, uh, you know, intellectual property is great because it never dies. Um, I gave the intellectual property rights back to the guys because it it, it made it easier for them to negotiate with DC. To reprint it in a, a re-paperback uh, rather than having to go through me um but i think that paperbacks in tons of languages and things like that so it's all over the it's all over the world yeah right so from there how did you get involved in toxic well <laughs> i know we don't have all day but <laughs> the, the, the short three and a half hour version is um pete root night as well as the shop we used to go to uh, comic marts in Liverpool and Manchester and the likes. Um, it was too much hassle to take stuff down to London, but Pete had, Pete had terrific comics. Pete, Pete was one of the, the, the best um, comic uh, back issue experts in the universe. And another guy called Root Rory Root in, in America, who was known for his back issue things, turned out to be his cousin. So there's something in the genes there. Um, Anyway, Pete and I were down in Manchester one time. We were staying cheaply with a, a, a lovely friend of mine, um, Mary Claire. Um, so we didn't have accommodation problems. I was just to go down there and get the stuff back. And we took some of the guys with us in a van, so there was no problem with that. But this guy came up to us called Jeff Fry. It's a bit, I always thought that name was like Stan Lee. One name divided into two. Anyway, Jeff, Jeff came up to us and he said, uh, I'm putting together a new distribution company to rival Titan. So, of course, you're a wee bit sceptical. Um, would you be interested? Now, we'd had a, f- a few problems with Titan. Not specifically personal problems, more, more business problems. The guys were all right, but it's business. And we said, ah, well, we'll, we'll could try you out, Jeff. So Jeff put together, uh, now, what was his distribution line called? Was it Neptune? Um, he put together Neptune and... Soon we, we, we upped our order because he, he, he managed to get all these independent shops that um, were kind of rivals to Forbidden Planet and we all kind of banded together and, and worked with Neptune. It seemed reasonable, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. I didn't stop, I don't think we ever stopped ordering from Titan, mm. but we lowered our order from Titan and we increased our order to Neptune. And one of our uh, mates in the shop, um, Glenn, he decided to join Neptune, so he became part of Neptune distribution. Anyway, Jeff phoned me up one day, could I assemble all the young Scottish comic creators? He was flying up to have a meeting with him about uh, Trident, his new uh, imprint for comics. So I assembled all these guys in Blackfriars Bar because the basement was free. And um, among other things, they published uh, Grant Morrison's St. Swithin's Day, 
the, the wonderful Paul Grist, which I thought was just amazing. And I was talking to Mark Miller recently, and he reminded me that Saviour, which we published in um, in its own comic, uh, at the same time as Trident, Saviour was his first published work. It's quite an amazing piece of work for a young boy. Um, and uh, I think I think Grant and Mark have done all right. Uh, uh, I think, um, but. I, I realised years later, this was just Jeff doing a dry run for something else. He then met me. He, I, oh, he employed me to be publisher. I wasn't really publisher. Uh, it was Martin Skidmore uh, who did all the work. He, to be publisher of uh, of his Trident line. So, um, uh, and indeed, Robin Smith was the designer of Trident. Uh, so we, we were all in there somewhere. He said, I'd like you to assemble the big boys. I said, who, who do you mean? He says, well, the folk that started 2000 AD. I said, oh, not too ambitious there, uh, Jeff. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll phone people. So I phoned Alan Moore, but Alan had just started working on Swamp Thing, which, as Alan said, it's about a thing. Well, isn't a Swamp. <laughs> um, Alan Davis was very sceptical about the offer of co-owning this company. Um, Alan's of the opinion that if something's too good to be true, it's probably not true. Um, so that was fine. So I get rid of them. Um, but uh, a number of us agreed to meet in Pat's house in uh, Colchester. Uh, there was Kevin O'Neill, Mike McMahon, John Wagner, Alan Grant, Pat, obviously. I think that was it for the initial meeting. Now, I thought we were planning a heavy metal magazine because Zarja's, which was supposed to be that kind of magazine, got transmuted into Star-Lord and then get amalgamated into Judge Red magazine and this and the next thing. But Britain didn't really have a heavy metal. And I thought this was what we were planning and I was really excited. No, no, no. Jeff brought out this spreadsheet that proved a weekly would make us all millionaires. <laughs> and I went, we don't have an inventory. I said, DC Thompson's got stuff lying in uh, drawers that's never been published. Even 2000 AD, they let me into the uh, this thing one day and it, it, all these scripts are lying there by Alan Moore and everybody I said you, you, you're going to run into deadline doom and I said somebody gets ill um, artwork gets lost but anyway Jeff got them all riled up into thinking no actually we, we've done weeklies before a weekly's good uh, it gets the energy going blah 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 and I thought oh I've lost this argument um, but one thing we did agree on was we needed an editor. So we approached um, a couple of people from DC, but the thought of moving to Leicester, uh, for some reason, they weren't encouraged by that. Um, if you've been in Leicester and you've been in New York, you, you might see the slightly different towns. <laughs> um, so eventually, uh, by, by default, really, uh, Pat Mills had to put on his action in 2008 he had and become the virtual editor and the art editor um as he was in 2008 at one point was kevin o'neill um now i thought they did a great job I, I, I what what they brought to the table was an underground sensibility they, they were they pushed things to the very limit of getting prescribed by wh smith I loved The Driver. I know a lot of readers hated it, but I thought it was brilliantly original. Um, 
and we 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 managed to get the rights back from martial law from uh, I think it was Marvel at the time um, for publishing it. But Archie Goodwin was a, a very very nice guy. He was very easy to get on with, but, uh, an absolute saint. Um, so I, I thought it was quite a success, but we did run into Deadline Doom, and I was off the project by that point. But I'm afraid what I said can't am that came true. Eventually, Dan Abnett, who's uh, had a wee bit of a success with Guardians of the Galaxy recently, eventually, Dan, uh, I think that was his first full-time comics job, he, he moved up to Leicester, um, and he became the editor, but by that time, I'm afraid, sales were slipping, deadlines were being missed. I don't mind, because I was brought up in Europe and you didn't get comics in order anyway, I don't mind a chapter missing for a month. But it seemed to bother readers. They wanted their weekly injection of whatever it was, the strip that they liked. And if they didn't get it every week, they didn't like it. And uh, unfortunately, sales went down. And yeah, if you look back at it, if you ever get back issues or you look at it in the library or something, uh, there's a lot of good stuff there. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, Jeff did give the IP to the, the creators. So that stuff hasn't necessarily disappeared forever. It, it, it can reappear in any form that the creators wish. So that, that that was a good thing. Yeah, I do remember at the time when it when it, it it stopped publication. I think I went in for a whole year to the newsagent asking for it if the next issue was coming out because all the stories were left in in limbo. I know, you know it was a shame. And another publisher could have taken it up. I mean, if I were IPC, mm. who really resented me, um, Richard Burton was told not to talk to me. Uh, that's not the right way to behave. What Harmsworth did, the, the original creator of what became IPC, Harmsworth Press, what Harmsworth did was he bought up everybody. He bought up all his rivals. That's why IPC and now Rebellion owned so many titles. These weren't created by Harmsworth. These were any titles he could buy up. Um, not necessarily put them out of business. Harmsworth kept some of these titles going. IPC should not have taken the humph uh, the reason that uh, 2000 AD is in colour these days is because of Toxic. Um, the last conversation I had with Richard Burton, I said, you don't need to do that, Richard. That's, that's, that's the wrong way to compete. Some artists are better in black and white. Some artists are better in colour. It doesn't have to be coloured. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, lost that argument as well. <laughs> um, I'm still right. <laughs> but they should have bought Toxic. Yeah, it had that punk edge, I think, that 2000 AD had lost at that point. Exactly. You know, and even the design of it, certainly the first few issues, which were designed by, by Kevin O'Neill, were, were very like the original work he did even before 2080. Yep. They had that edge and, yep. that, and, and, and it felt more uh, more real in a way. Yeah, you know? I, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I'd still rather have had a Metalurno, but um, yeah. uh, I, I absolutely loved it. I've, read, I've reread it recently because I was writing an article and... Uh, I, I, I still like it. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if IPC had brought it up and it had run alongside 2008, it, it would have lasted longer and they could have done the usual IPC thing, great news chums, and <laughs> uh, amalgamated yeah. it into 2008. <laughs> That's the way I would have handled it. Yeah. Taking the humph was not the right thing yeah. to do. Who knows what, what, what could have happened? It could have still been going today. Could have been. Know, you know. Like, they, like a lot of the comics from that time, actually. Yeah. You know. It's good to see Rebellion um, having finally got through Robert Maxwell's um, bizarre business tactics. 
Um, I'm not the only person to have sued Robert Maxwell, by the way. Um, but I'm quite proud that I did. Um, I met Robert Maxwell, actually. I met him at the launch of uh, the Scottish Daily News. And boy, was he drunk. And boy, was he big. <laughs> you wouldn't want to argue with that, man. Um, but anyway, uh, I... Uh, Maxwell is at the the core of all this. He, he really, he's, he's, he, he owns something like 300 companies. I'm disentangling all that, I'm disentangling all the comics to which he'd rights and some to which he didn't have rights because of some other complication. Uh, I'm, I'm glad Rebellion did it because I couldn't get my head around it. I mean, you could argue that's only just been resolved. Uh, it's literally only just being resolved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all these years later. But it's, that's what I mean about intellectual property. It doesn't go away. Yeah. So I want to go back to the to the Glasgow comic scene again because the uh, first time I met you, John, was at um, Scam. Well, <laughs> what happened was um, uh, the comic club had been running every week. You, know, you can't conceive of a of folk meeting every week to talk about comics. Um, I mean, specifically talk about comics. You can see them. I meet my pals every week, but it's, it's not formal. But this guy, Tommy Somerville, who was doing Electric Soup, um, another seminal Glasgow publication, I may say, um, he came up to me and said, I think we should up the ante in this. Um, and we all were pally with Alan, who owned uh, Blackfriars Bar. I went into Blackfriars one day and every table, somebody was reading a comic. Mostly 2000 AD, uh, Viz, Electric Soup, the kind of undergroundy stuff, but there was all these guys sitting there with their pints reading a comic, and Alan looked at me and he went, "See, it works." <laughs> so they were quite into. Um, oh, we also ran a comedy club there. Uh, um, uh, my friend um, Patrick Evans had this comedy club, and that was one of the venues. The other venue was the Athenaeum, opposite Forbidden Planet uh, in Buchanan Street. Um, so we always had events and. Blackfriars, I mean, you the guy, and Tommy had his office just down the road. So I said, oh, yeah, well, we don't, we don't have to meet in Winters Girls all the time. You know, we can meet anywhere we want. So we asked Alan to put aside a monthly um, booking for downstairs in Blackfriars, and he did it for nothing. Um, he just sent a barman down there, and considering we had 100 people there one night, I don't think he lost out on it. And then it was quite funny, the first meeting, Somebody had let Tommy down. Um, this always happens when you're organising something at the last minute. I said, John, I haven't got a really good guest for the first meeting. I said, what about Will Eisner? He said, well, I can't afford to bring somebody over from America. I said, he's not in America. He's in Dublin. Why is he in Dublin? I said, because we do business in Dublin and he's in Dublin and he's, he's flying to Paris. So he might as well fly to Paris via Glasgow. Well, that's a good idea. Well, I thought it was a good idea myself. Mm. It didn't cost us very yeah, much. Definitely. And Tommy did a great show. He got all the guys from the Wallace clan who just done Braveheart. They, they, they had their swords all in a, a, a salute as Eisner walked into the bar. We bought him a, 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 a Jimmy Bunnet. <laughs> um, if you don't know what that is, look up on the internet. <laughs> um, I think Kenny Who wears one. Um, and he got the BBC along. Uh, I forgot the name of the, the lovely girl that interviewed him. She was on TV recently. She's, she's, uh, I've just forgotten her name. But with the BBC and everything, uh, it was it was great fun. And uh, Martin Conaghan uh, interviewed Will uh, for a magazine, Speakeasy perhaps. Mm -hmm. 
it, it, it was just what, what a great launch and we kept that club going Toby had this daft name for it I don't even know if I remember it Scam Scottish Comic Artists something members something yeah <laughs> but yeah. nobody cared what it meant <laughs> it had a nice little badge I remember <laughs> it was a great badge yeah. the badge was fab <laughs> um, yeah I don't remember it thank me <laughs> anyway as, as, uh, we, we also had uh, Steve McGarry we had Gilbert Shelton oh Gilbert was hilarious mm-hmm. uh, brilliant guest and Tommy hired this jazz band thinking he'd get one up on me but unfortunately the jazz band was my pals uh, Charlie Boyle and his sister um, but Charlie, because he he's a comic collector, he, he geared the jazz to what Gilbert liked deliberately. <laughs> uh, I don't think the rest of the band knew what Charlie was doing, but he did it deliberately. And um, at one point, somebody goes to talk to Gilbert. They says, "I'll talk to you later. I'm listening to the band." So that, <laughs> that was great because it was a very small venue. Uh, yeah, that's what was great about it. Though. When when I started going, which was through Cam Kennedy. Uh, in around about 1997-98 when I was working for a video games company in Glasgow and I think that's the first place I met Dave Gibbons he was there oh yeah Dave was there yeah I mean it was it was a who's who of of Scottish and uh, UK and international comics I I would say basically if I got wind of somebody being within spitting distance of Glasgow we invited them and that's how we got all these people We, we never once flew anybody from America incidentally Gilbert Shelton lives in Paris but his brother lives in Dublin, so we actually flew him over from Dublin as well. Um, and that's not a big flight, it's, it's a doddle. Uh, we had um, the fellow that did rhubarb and custard, the animator. Bob Godfrey. We had Bob Godfrey, yeah, yep. he was fantastic. Yep. My dad and I collected him from the airport, I think my dad was totally bemused. <laughs> um, Bob, Bob Godfrey had met one of the popes. Um, I don't think it was John Paul, I think it was Pope Paul or something. And Paul had been briefed with some of Bob's cartoons. He said, you're a very naughty man <laughs> in, in great Italian. Um, I can't remember who else we had there. We had Brian Talbot, of course. We had all the usual suspects. Yeah, it's no, it's fantastic. And, um, and and actually, a lot of interviews that you hear to this day with comic creators, they certainly uh, comic creators who have come from Glasgow often state that you know uh, their intro to the uh, industry was through was through scam. It, it was yeah. that big, you know, yeah. because well, there was nothing else like it, you no. know, really, uh, nothing that I knew of. Uh, and actually, a lot of the connections I made back in the day there are people I still connect with uh, doing the comic courses now yeah see the, the internet's all very well but you haven't met these people this was one to one yeah and if Tommy would come in with electric soup and somebody would say I've got this idea for a joke and, and, and ended up in electric soup and um, guys didn't have an artist they would ask around for artists artists would want to a writer they would ask around for writers I, I I've, I've no track of how many publications resulted from that? But I would guess it's quite a lot, yeah. uh, because uh, there was a hundred people there one day. Uh, don't tell the fire people. Uh, I think that was against regulations. Um, but there was a lot going on, and you, you can't quite get that on the internet. Some people, obviously, you can trust, and they do a great job, and you've never met them, obviously. But it's much better to have personal contact, yeah. and that's what the Westminster Arms and uh, Winters Girls. And Blackfriars gave us personal contact. Yeah, no, I think it is important. It's what we try and do uh, up in Dundee 
uh, and maybe uh, we'll talk a little bit about Dundee and uh, the times you've been up to visit us and also uh, what's coming up next for example uh, the lakes uh, is, is imminent and uh, anything else you're, you're up yeah. to well I've, I've always um, my dad worked in Dundee uh, he was a he was the first manager of Pickford's Dundee who delivers stuff for DC Thompson so I was very envious that my dad had been the DC Thompson building and I had and <laughs> When I first visited Dundee, and it was a long, long time ago, I wasn't very impressed. It was very dark, uh, dark satanic mills. Um, the river, obviously, was fantastic. The, the, the tea is amazing. But I just wasn't that impressed with the whole place. What a transformation. Um, I, I go up pretty much every month. I don't always tell people long enough. I sometimes sneak up so I can go to the McMaster and just take in... The, it was a wonderful exhibition of pencil drawings, I think owned by the Thompsons one time. It was fabulous. And I kind of like doing that by myself and not telling them they're there. Um, there's fabulous eating and drinking places. Uh, I'm looking forward to the V&A. But also too as well for by, there's Chris and Phil up at the uh, University of Dundee in Duncan and Johnson and their comic studio. And, and the number of guests they get up there, uh, Pat Mills, um, Dave Gibbons, uh, Ian Kennedy, who at 83 is still as good an artist as he ever was, absolutely amazing guy. Cam Kennedy, who's no relative, <laughs> but they now know each other. <laughs> then it was Will Eisner's 100th anniversary, and I said, I think we should do a tribute to Will Eisner, maybe get a number of artists to draw the spirit. So how do we do that? Well, um, I know Anne Eisner, uh, she still lives in Florida. And I know Dennis Kitchen, who's Will's agent. And Anne was all for it. Dennis uh, put us in touch with IDW, who at the moment own the Worldwide Rights to uh, any spirit publication. But they were quite happy, so long as they get the American publication rights. Sean Phillips, I, I went down to Auction Home and I met Julie and Sean. And Sean said, I think we should do it like a newspaper the, the way it used to be. And I said, is that possible? Isn't it expensive? Anyway, Sean was determined. Said, well, that's a, that's a good one. I like that. Um, and we started the periods contacting various artists. And I think we did a really nice publication. Um, Chris uh, from Dundee came up with a great essay about how Eisner was instrumental in British comics, uh, which is not something a lot of people know about. Uh, but it was through Wag, it, Wags magazine, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and Wags it was some of the earliest work of Will Eisner himself, uh, Jack Kirby, uh, and Bob Kane, and and Dick Briefer, I think, uh, and somebody else. Um, it's just it's an amazing uh, thing, and because it was American style and didn't have those stupid captions that British comics had for years that nobody ever read. Um, I think it looks as though it was very influential on the Bino and, and things like that. Yeah. What an amazing essay it was. Yeah. So I edited it because it had to fit in a page because we very suddenly got an essay by uh, Neil Gaiman to put in the back. Uh, so that, that mocked up my original plans. <laughs> um, uh, it, threw out, it threw out Phil's illustration That's that he'd done. Um, but I think the, the whole thing looked great and he got nominated for an Eisner Award. Yep. So I'm very, very chuffed at all of us were involved in something 
It was actually nominated for a nice yeah, award. Yeah, for, no, we, for were, best we, were, we were lucky enough to be at that award ceremony this year as well. So it's a pity he didn't win, but it was a fantastic piece of work. I, I think nominated yeah. is as good as winning. Yeah. I mean, so that's the Bogeyman was nominated for a BAFTA. And my spirit publication was nominated for an Eisner. I'm I'm quite happy Third with time that. Lucky. Third time lucky. <laughs> lucky. I'll win an Oscar. Yeah. So yeah, so that brings us kind of right up to date, I suppose. What what's kind of next? What's next? More publications uh, coming out. Everybody loved the format that Sean devised for my Topfer book. Yeah. So, um, and, and in fact, Dennis Gifford did a book years ago called Discovering Comics. That's kind of the same format, and it was that was. I think that precipitated that idea. Um, Ford Kiernan um, had a copy and he, he, he said it was great. He said, I got on a train to go to some meeting and it fits in my pocket. And I was able to read it in the train and put it back in my pocket. He says, that's a great format. You should do more books. So we get Ford's endorsement as well. Um, what's next? Probably some more comics. I, I, I was involved in, in pushing the... Um, creator and publisher of comic scene to bring it out slightly early how he, how he managed it on my ridiculous deadline I, I don't know but I think he did a great job and I've got a column in that called Through the Looking Glass yeah. um, he, he phoned me out one day and he said um, I'd like somebody who could do a kind of article at the end, somebody like Pat Mills and I said well why not Pat Mills <laughs> and he said can you get in touch with Pat I said I think, I think I'll probably be in touch within the day and Pat was very uh, conversant with the idea behind the magazine I've been following things online and Pat's got his regular column along with me uh, so that's been a great success um, I've still to win that Oscar though. <laughs> well that's a good place to leave it so thanks very much John for taking the time out to speak to me today thanks Phil